The following audio is from Park Church in Denver, Colorado. More information about Park Church is available online at parkchurchdenver.org. I want to talk to you about an aspect of spiritual leadership that I felt like I feel like no one really helped me understand for about a decade. Um, so I entered into pastoral ministry in 2001, coming out of campus ministry, uh, planted Quorumdale Church in 2005. And it wasn't until a couple of years ago that some friends of mine got me thinking about um, this particular aspect of leadership. And so I felt like I sort of spent a decade leading people, um, and that had fruitfulness and, and good um, effect to it. But there was, there was some aspects of leadership, this one in particular, that i just never given much thought to. Um, and that is the question of how the gospel affects your presence as a leader. How the gospel affects your presence as a leader. Um, so here's what I think about our tribe. And when I say our tribe, I sort of mean the, the broad sort of gospel-centered church planting movement. So whether you're Acts 29 or Sovereign Grace or SBC or, uh, you know, any other sin, North America or any of that stuff, um, I think we all sort of have a common commitment to sort of good gospel theology, uh, a gospel-centered paradigm of ministry, um, gospel preaching, faithful preaching of the Bible, those things are all good. Those things are, in fact, non-negotiable, and I wouldn't want you ever to plant a church without them. But I think for a long time, I was sort of satisfied with that, with sort of just a healthy gospel theology um, articulated in our ministry. And I did not think about the importance of gospel presence, especially in me as a leader, um, and, and the effect that my presence has on my leadership and how people receive and respond to my leadership. And so that's what I want to talk about um, today. Um, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to get us, I'm going to try to set a framework for us to talk about this. And then, I, I, again, I, I'm sure this will take us a hundred different ways. But, but here's what I want you to think about. I want you to think about um, men especially, leaders, who um, have that sense when, when you're just in their presence, there's something about them that sort of feels grounded, that feels other-centered, that feels like there's a very confident sense of self that's not arrogant, that's not prideful, but that they're just there with all of themselves. Um, you know, I, we have a gift in that I think Scotty Smith and Ray Ortland and some of those guys ahead of us in ministry are guys like that. But for me, the guy that comes to mind is my grandfather. Uh, my grandfather's 97 years old. He's still... Uh, ticking and living on his own in the middle of South Dakota, and man, he's just, a, he's just an amazing, godly man. He's a World War II veteran, and so when I was growing up, I just remember my grandfather having all these amazing stories. I mean, as a kid, you're sort of fascinated with battle and war and like hero- heroism, right? And so, I mean, ser- seriously, every time I visited my grandfather in this, he lives in a little town of 600 people on the plains of South Dakota, and every time we went there, I would just say, hey, tell us that Tell us that story about the time. He was, an, he was a naval aviator, so he flew fighter jets, or fighter, not at that time, not jets, fighter planes, uh, in the Pacific Theater. Had amazing stories of combat and of wrecking planes and ships getting blown up. and I mean, just all these amazing war stories. And so he just, tell us more about that. Tell me that one story again. And you're just fascinated by the fact that he had experienced and lived all these things. So he sort of had that heroic quality about him, but also he had that... Um, that sense of the World War II generation that it really wasn't about him and he wasn't that impressed with what he had done. It was just the 
he followed the call of duty and did whatever he had to do to serve his country. And so there was a real deep humility about him. He never volunteered those stories. I always had to ask and say, what was it like being a pilot? Tell me more about that. Um, he came back to South Dakota after the war and um, took over a hardware store that his father had started in, in, in the town and ran that for a long time. And then he had a he had a dramatic conversion to Christ at about age 29 or 30. So he wasn't a Christian, um, had a friend who came back uh, from California to South Dakota specifically to share the gospel with my grandfather, a buddy of his from high school. And both my grandfather and grandmother were converted. And so they had this decisive sort of um, change in their life as far as sort of their spiritual convictions and sort of really understanding the gospel. And so you layer on top of sort of this wartime heroic you know, sort of servant-hearted mentality, just a really deep apprehension of God's grace in their lives and the beauty of, of Christ. And then what ended up happening was in a small town like that, there was really two churches. There was a Roman Catholic church and there was a Methodist church. And they began attending the Methodist church and then that, that denomination in, in their town started to trend really liberal in about the 1950s. And so they got to the place where they just felt like, man, we can't be here anymore in good conscience. And so they planted a church um, unintentionally, it wasn't like he was a church planner, he was a guy working another job, but um, out of just their convictions about scripture, um, started a church that's still there in that little town, and it's a little church of, you know, 30 or 40 people, it's not huge, um, but it's been a faithful presence in that town for about 60 years now. And so I just remember my grandfather being one of those men who, man, he was just a grounding presence in my life, and when, if you walked in the room and met him, he's, um, he doesn't like take over the room. He's not one of those guys you'd be like, oh, everybody's sort of drawn to him. But he's one of those guys that has such a stable, grounded sense of who he is and is always engaging, present, aware, loving, conversational, asking you about your life. Um, just last year, I took my family, my kids up to Mount Rushmore. And so we drove through and spent some time with my grandfather and took him out to dinner. And he's going around the table asking each of my kids, hey, so what's going on with baseball? What's going on with school? Just very interested and engaged in what's going on in their lives. These are his great grandchildren, right? So huge sort of generational difference between how he, where he is in life and where they are in life and yet still a deep interest. Okay, so, so there's something I'm saying, there's something about the presence of a person like that. That, that you feel, even though you can't really quantify what is it, what is it, you know, what's his, what is it theologically that's coming to bear or sort of existentially that's coming to bear that makes him that way. You just know it when you see it. Um, contrast that with, I was just thinking about this recently, there's a, a young man in our church right now that has a very different sense of presence. Um, uh, my, my, my guess is he's going through some sort of clinical depression. There's probably some sort of biochemical stuff there, but ha, ha, went through a really rough breakup with a girl that he was very interested in about a year ago. And, and he's a young guy in his 20s, and um, he's on our setup team at church. And so I showed up last Sunday getting ready to preach, and you know, he's helping set up the building because we meet in a rented space. Um, and, and this guy never smiles. Like his whole countenance has just sort of fallen. And when you talk to him, you're like, hey, man, how's your day going? He doesn't do like the, he doesn't even fake like, hey, it's great. He just, it's, his response is sort of like, it's good. Right, and so like, there's something about his presence that sort of just takes the air out of the room. And I don't fault him for that. I think that's, that's where he is in life and there's a lot going on in his story. But, but you experience that guy not as like a life-giving presence, but as like, a, oh man. Like it starts to make you asking questions like, am I too cheerful right now? Should I have engaged you in a more like different kind of way? Because obviously... You're not responding to sort of my interest in your life with any sort of like, 
you know, social grace. And so there's a sense that there's a different kind of presence that that guy has that you feel. And again, you can't put your finger on it and you don't really know what's behind it. But something's very different about the way he carries himself and what that does to a room and what that does to a community. Um, so I think there's something about presence that really matters to leadership. And, and I, the reason I tell those two stories is because I think we know it when we see it, though we might not be able to tangibly reflect on what is it and how does it work and, and, how, and what's my presence like. So that's the topic I want to talk to you about is how the gospel transforms your presence as a leader. What I want to do today is I want to start with a secular author who was sort of my entry point into thinking about this, and then I want to lay a gospel paradigm over the top of that, all right? So I'm going to take um, sort of a secular book on leadership that works out some of these dynamics, and I'm going to frame those up for you and then say, okay, now how do we, if we lay the gospel over these common grace insights, how does that give sort of a deeper clarity to some of the things that he's talking about? Um, I'm guessing that some of you guys are familiar with this book, A Failure of Nerve. How many of you guys have read this or heard of this book? Okay, so a few of you. Um, uh, This is the book that I'm sort of going to summarize for you because it's the book that for me um, was sort of the window into thinking about presence as a key quality of leadership. So um, let me summarize in about 10 minutes for you sort of the point, the the argument of a failure of nerve. This is um, Edwin H. Friedman Friedman is a, a Jewish rabbi. Um, He served for 20 years as a pulpit rabbi within a synagogue, and then for 25 years as a family therapist in the Washington, D.C. area. Okay, and not only that, but he served in the Lyndon Johnson administration as an advisor. And so he he has a unique experience because he has a sort of religious synagogue world experience. So he comes from a community of faith. He's got a family therapy experience, so he has a deep understanding of sort of how family dynamics shape us. And then he has sort of political and organizational experience. And so what's interesting about this book is he's writing it. He actually didn't finish writing it. He died before it was finished. And so his, his widow sort of compiled the manuscripts he was working on and put them together. And so the book has sort of a disjointedness to it. It's not coherent and cohesive. It's sort of like you're reading a series of essays that sort of tap the same themes or they don't fit together well. But what Friedman is saying is he says, hey, I I observed a really similar trend in leaders, whether they're religious leaders, whether they were trying to lead a family, or whether they were trying to lead in politics and business. There's a consistent theme across all three of those spheres that he wants to talk about, and that's what this book is sort of built on. So there are two aspects or two ways of thinking about leadership that Friedman in this book is trying to deconstruct. So I like to think of his work here as, He's deconstructing one vision of leadership, and he's reconstructing a different one. And so here's what he wants to deconstruct, and he's fascinating this way because he's he's a pretty insightful cultural critic. So the first first myth about leadership that he's trying to deconstruct and, and disempower is the idea that more data leads to better leadership. That more data, better information leads to better leadership decisions. And he says, this is the great folly of American pragmatism, is that we're taught, especially in all of our educational system, that the key to leadership is having the most data that we can have, right? So if you're in church planning world, man, do you know the demographics of your people, and do you know the sort of view on the ground? And like, right, if you have all the data, if you have as much data as possible, that's going to mean an effective church plant, Right? Or if you're trying to lead an organization, man, the more leadership books you read, the more sort of management books you read, the more podcasts you listen to of like, you know, the One Minute Manager and the Startup Podcast, and right, all, all these people in the business world, the more data you take in, the more effective you'll be as a leader. 
He says that's patently false. It's not that data is bad, but it's a myth that more and better information leads to better leadership. Um, and so he just wants to say, can we just call that a myth? Can we just, can we just identify that as one of the key weaknesses of how we think about leadership is that we, most of us think in some way, if I just have good data, good information, and, and sort of good technique, I'll be effective as a leader. Nope, he says that's not true. The second myth he's trying to deconstruct is the idea that self in a leader is a bad thing. Um, he says because we live in a democratic society and because people are very rightly skeptical of power, um, what happens with leaders is we buy into the idea that if a leader is too assertive or too self-assured, that that's a bad thing. And so really the problem with sort of um, a leader who's not effective is there's too much self in them and they're not thinking enough about the community. Um, Friedman says... There's some insights in that that we need to identify. It's, it's ba- the base of what he says is, we're seeing symptoms that really are there, but we're making the wrong diagnosis. Uh, so when you have a leader who is not taking into account the needs of others or is leading an organization in sort of a, what feels like a sort of selfish way, there is a problem there that we need to get to the bottom of, but the problem is not that that leader needs to have less of a sense of self. And if that's the answer, we actually sort of de- uh, decapitate uh, leadership in a really unhealthy way. So he's trying to deconstruct the idea that more information means better leadership and that less self leads to better leadership. Okay? Um, so here's the, here's the reflection question that, that I think Friedman invites us to think about. If you saw leadership, and, and think about your leadership as a spiritual leader, as a pastor, as a ministry leader, as a group leader, if you saw leadership as primarily about your presence and not about skill or technique or information, what would change? What would you do differently if you really bought into the idea that presence matters more than technique, skill, information? So that's just a question to, to put before you as you think about how these, apply, how these concepts apply to your own leadership. Okay, so if, if he's deconstructing data and information and technique is the key to leadership, and, you know, less self is the key to leadership. If those are not the case, what, is he, what does he want to say to us? What, what hypothesis does he want to put forward that is the key to leadership? Well, the answer to that um, is in the title of his book, A Failure of Nerve. Uh, he wants to say the key problem of leadership is a failure of nerve. Leaders fail not because they lack information or lack technique, but because they lack the nerve, the courage, the presence to stand firm in the midst of other people's anxiety um, and other people's reactivity. And the key variable in leadership, according to Friedman, is a leader's presence. All right? So that's what we're going to keep coming back to. Um, applied to ministry, you might think of it this way. It's not your preaching. It's not your strategy. It's not your great missionary vision that's going to compel people to follow you. It's your presence. And so you need to think about that question of um, what, is, what is your presence like and how does that affect whether people see you as someone they want to follow or, or skeptical of whether you're someone they want to follow. Um, I think we default to thinking if I preach well, if I have a decent strategy and if I have a good missionary vision and sort of good church planting vision, that'll compel people to follow. Those things matter. But Friedman's saying if you have all those things and people are not... Um, 
compelled by your presence, they probably are going to struggle to follow you. Now, let me frame out this idea of presence a little more fully. Um, Friedman's understanding of leadership hinges on the idea of what he calls emotional process. Um, As a leader, whether you're talking about in your family, in a small group, or in a whole church, you're operating within an emotional and relational environment, right? And um, Friedman says it this way. This is helpful for me because I need sort of hooks to hang thought on. He says, think of your, your family and your church and, and any group that you're in, any group where you're called to be a leader or to exert leadership. That group of people has an emotional field. Okay, think of it like a gravitational field or like a, a magnetic field. Uh, it has a certain sort of emotional relational field to it. And most commonly, that emotional field is marked by a lot of anxiety. Um, Friedman believes that chronic anxiety is the mark of modern human society. You may agree or disagree with that, but he would say, especially in sort of postmodern society, chronic anxiety is foundational to sort of a lot of our relational and emotional reality. And so leaders are going to do one of two things. They're either going to take on the chronic anxiety that's present in the system, or they're going to transform that anxiety through their sense of presence. So if you think of this as a leader, I mean, think of this as leading a core team, right? I'll go back to sort of the early years of Quorum Day. When you're leading a fragile core team of 30, 40, 50, 60 people trying to convince them, hey, let's plant a church together. Um, You know as well as I do that one person in that group goes sideways and things can get really ugly, right? Like you get one person who doesn't buy into the vision or who all of a sudden has some reason they don't trust you or you make them upset. They can begin to poison a whole lot of people in, in, in how they respond to your leadership and vision, right? Why is that? Well, it's because there's this emotional system that we're all sort of operating in, this relational context that we're operating in, and a leader's going to do one of two things. They're either going to take on that anxiety and be transformed by it, or they are going to transform that anxiety through their sense of presence. Um, So Friedman's Friedman's thing, and where we're going to go in a few minutes, is show how the gospel gets us here. Friedman's key concept for leaders is your job as a leader is to have a well-differentiated presence. A well-differentiated presence. Um, I'll get to what that means and and how the gospel, I think, gets us there. But let me first of all frame out for you um, five characteristics of an unhealthy emotional system. All right, I want to get down more granular and say, okay, when he talks about an emotional process and chronic anxiety and the idea that we're all operating in a relational system, what is he talking about? Um, so I'm going to give you, he lists five characteristics of an unhealthy emotional system, and then you're going to see how a well-differentiated leader sort of stands apart from each of these five characteristics. So assume, for the sake of this part of the talk, that most of the people in your church come from families with unhealthy emotional systems, okay? So they've already been formed in navigating a pretty unhealthy emotional environment, and you should probably assume that most of your small groups have unhealthy emotional systems, okay? Because people have been shaped by that, they're just bringing that with them into the church. And so what you're going to experience, no matter how healthy the culture of your church is, some element of these marks of unhealthy emotional system are present in even the most healthy church, okay? So let me give you these five characteristics. Number one, unhealthy emotional systems are marked by reactivity. People are reactive, They don't know how to maturely deal with 
conflict or tension or things that sort of set them spinning. And so what they tend to do instead is react when that happens. Um, I'll tell you a story that's, that's a story from this spring at Coromdale Church. So we multiplied a gospel community out of one of our gospel communities. And we had this leadership team that we were like, well, these people are pretty young leaders, but, but there's a good core there, and we're going to multiply this gospel community out. Well, one of the couples in this gospel community um, has fairly progressive and liberal political views. Another couple in this gospel community has fairly conservative uh, political views. And what happened is at some point in some gospel community conversation, one of them started talking about their political views. I don't know if it was the more conservative couple or the more liberal couple, but the very, uh, the very next day, our gospel community pastor got a text message from the other couple. And they said, um, we've we we got to get out of this gospel community. We can't stay here anymore. And he was like, well, what, what happened? Tell me what happened. And they were basically like, well, this other couple that we are leading with, they believe this about politics. Right? And so, like, all of us would say, okay, a mature response to that would be like, let's engage that and let's see that the gospel's bigger than whether you lean this way or that way politically. But this couple, just all they could do was react to the fact of like, oh my gosh, I can't believe someone could think that. I, I don't have another category other than reactivity. Right? And so they, they, literally, they actually left our church. Because we tried to enter in and help them solve that and say, well, let's talk about how the gospel can actually make this a healthy conversation. And we, we got into that, and they were just sort of like, nope, we're tapping out. So they left. Um, unhealthy emotional systems are marked by that kind of reactivity where instead of a mature entering into conversation, there's sort of a, if something sets me off in a way that I don't quite expect or have a category for, I immediately react. By contrast, Friedman would say a well-differentiated leader doesn't react to other people's reactivity. There's an ability to sort of stay calm and grounded in the midst of situations like that where someone is expressing a very reactive um, response to a situation or to what you've done as a leader. So a well-differentiated leader is able to stay calm and steady, not react. Reactivity. Secondly, emotional, unhealthy emotional systems are marked by a herding instinct. Herding, like a herd of cattle. Okay? Not hurting. They're marked by a herding instinct. In other words, in an unhealthy emotional system, when people start to get frustrated or they get alarmed or, or they're set off in some way, there's a herding instinct of who else can I herd together with that, that has this same issue that I do. So you all know how this goes because you've been leading long enough, right? It's the person who comes to you and is like, hey, lots of people have problems with your preaching. And you're like, well, who are the lots of people? Well, I've talked to at least three other people that think exactly like I do, right? And why do people do that? Why do they come and they want to they put upon you the nameless group of people in the church that have issues with this or that? It's because they don't actually have the courage to say, hey, actually, I just have a problem with your preaching. Can I talk to you about it? It takes a lot of courage to stand apart from a leader in that way and say, can I just talk to you about something? It's way safer to say, hey, I'm part of a herd that all thinks the same way about what's going on right now, right? Um, so unhealthy emotional systems are marked by that herding instinct. In contrast to that, a well-differentiated leader, according to Edward Freeman, has a strong sense of self and can separate while remaining connected. It's the right kind of individualism, a, a biblical kind of individualism that says, I can stand on my own two feet and have my own point of view while remaining intimately connected in relationship with people around me. 
A well-differentiated leader is the kind of person who can say, hey, can I just tell you where I disagree with you on something? Is that okay for us to talk about? I don't have to bring a nameless group of people with me in order to validate that conversation. All right, third, unhealthy emotional systems are marked by blame displacement. Not much we need to say about this, right? I mean, you guys have seen this, you know how this works. Um, displacing blame, so I'm not at fault, it actually was the small group that's the problem, it's my marriage that's the problem, it's my family of origin that's the problem, it's you that's the problem. It's very hard for me to accept responsibility, so I have a tendency to displace blame onto other people and situations. Um, In contrast, a well-differentiated leader takes responsibility for himself and leads others to do the same. This is why repentance in a leader is so crucial. Because repentance is, hey, I'm willing to take responsibility for myself. Let me show you what that looks like. And in modeling that as a leader, I encourage and empower other people to do the same. In an unhealthy system, there's an unwillingness to take personal responsibility, and so everything has to get displaced off of me onto the situation around me. All right, fourth, unhealthy emotional systems are marked by a quick-fix mentality. Relief from pain is more important than lasting change. And you've seen, this is what keeps people from deep transformation, right? Because when they get to a place in their life or in their marriage or in a relationship where they're experiencing pain, rather than asking, man, what is God trying to show me in this? And how in moving into this pain can I experience his grace and redemptive healing? What I'm after is get this pain out of my life as fast as possible, right? And so instead of pursuing deep transformation, I settle for shallow fixes that just resolve the pain. Um, Here's how we see this. There's one way this plays out in a church. Um, You've probably had leaders who come to you like we have, you know, we have a bunch of different gospel communities in our church. And so regularly we're having leaders coming to us who are like, hey, I'm burned out. I'm fried. I'm tired of leading a gospel community. I want a break. Right? And here's the tendency that even that even me as a leader and leaders on our team, our tendency is to want to honor that and say, man, you probably do need a break. You've actually had a tough go this year, right? And so what we want to do is sort of resolve the pain by giving them what, we're ask- what they're asking for instead of saying, hey, let's talk about what you're feeling. Let's talk about that burnout that you're feeling. What's God doing in that? Is it actually, is what you need to step away from leadership or, is, or maybe you're getting to the end of your flesh and now there's an opportunity for you to lean into the spirit and experience an even deeper sense of God's presence, right? We, we sometimes never ask those questions because we're after the quick fix. Okay, well, I don't want these leaders to experience pain. How can I solve the problem? A well-differentiated leader recognizes that true long-term change is going to require discomfort. And so they're willing to lead others through discomfort toward change. Here's the fifth one. Unhealthy emotional systems are marked by poorly defined leadership. No one knows who's in charge. No one wants to be in charge. No one wants to step out and say, I'll take responsibility for this. And so what you have in an unhealthy emotional system is, think about a family that does, think about a family where there's not a person who's willing to say, I'll lead this family spiritually, right? And so what you have is sort of this chaos of, well, I kind of lead sometimes, but not all the time. I lead in this area, but not that area. We don't really know who's in charge of this area or that area. And so what you have is this sense of everybody's frustrated about something, but no one really knows who, to take, who, who should take responsibility for solving it, right? Um, by contrast, a well-differentiated leader takes decisive stands 
even at the risk of displeasing others. The reality is, hey, here's where we need to go, and this might make you frustrated, this might displease you, but that's okay. It's the right thing for us to do. Someone needs to step out and lead. Let's go in this direction. Now, so those are sort of just Friedman's five marks of an unhealthy emotional system, and then five contrasts of how a well-differentiated leader stands in contrast to that, okay? What I want to do now, so, so what I'm saying is, Edwin Friedman was really, really helpful to me in just opening up this conversation, saying, gosh, I can totally see that system in my church, I can see that system in my relationships, I can see how presence actually does really matter. What does it mean to be a well-differentiated leader? How do I move in that direction? So what I want to do now is I sort of want to lay a gospel grid over Friedman's insights and just say, okay, his, his um, drum that he's beating is you need to be a well-differentiated leader. You need to be a well-differentiated leader. You need to be a well-differentiated leader. I want to ask, how does the gospel help us get there? Um, how should the gospel rightly experienced and applied make us well-differentiated leaders that have a distinct sort of presence? Remember, the, the category is emotional process. That's the, Friedman's working in the, in the field of emotional and relational process. He's, he's working in, think about it this way, the intangibles rather than the tangibles, right? He's saying there's an intangible sort of relational field that you're leading in. You can't identify it, put your finger on it, but it's there. So therefore, what that means is, for us as leaders to become the kind of well-differentiated leaders that we need to be, it takes more than an intellectual grasp of the gospel. Right? The gospel has to filter down into the existential, relational aspects of our being. Um, it has to change our presence, not just our knowledge and our thinking. Okay? So where Friedman talks about the well-differentiated leader, I think in a gospel paradigm, I would just call that a God-fearing, gospel-saturated leader, or a God-fearing, gospel-grounded leader. Um, someone who has a deep apprehension of the gospel, and that has sunk in, not just to sort of their thinking about life and the world, but into their understanding of the relational and emotional dynamics of human interaction. And it begins to change us in how we interact in relationships. So let me get to sort of the gospel application by, by framing out what I think are the two key problems we experience in ministry leadership, okay? Um, and that, it's oversimplification, but that's what, I, that's what I do, okay? I give you categories, and then you can nuance them out yourself. Um, but I think if we can oversimplify, what are the sort of two characteristics? If I can do a Tim Keller, the gospel's the third way, what are the two ditches that we can fall into, right? Um, the, the two common traps in leadership are fear of man or narcissism, right? Fear of man, the leader who's sort of so concerned about what everybody thinks that he can't lead effectively, or narcissist and the person who's so selfish and self-driven that they're not even sort of aware of how their leadership is affecting the people around them. So let's just think about fear of man and sort of, if you want to call it nar narcissism, the best word I can think of, but I realize that's also like a personality disorder, so if you're like a therapy-thinking kind of person, maybe that's too specific of a category, but it's just the best word I could put on it, sort of that the fear of man, the leader who leads out of sort of fear of others, or sort of that um, authoritarian, narcissistic, self-against-the-world type of leadership. Here's what I want to suggest. Both of those responses, think about this, 
Both of those responses are responses to a chronically anxious system. So if I'm, living, let, if, I'm, if I'm living and operating in a world where there's chronic anxiety, let's just assume it's a family of origin, okay? So let's go back to the family you grew up in and the family that began to shape you as a leader. Um, if I'm living within a system marked by chronic anxiety and unhealthy emotional process, fear of man is the fear-driven response to that, right? I'm sort of going to adapt to that system, and so my job is to manage how everybody in the system is relating to me and make sure that everybody is stable and, and is relating okay with each other and relating okay to me. The leader who leads that way is always driven by fear of man because they're always asking, how are you receiving what I'm saying? How are you receiving what I'm saying? How are you receiving what I'm saying? Are you okay? Are we okay, right? And so they end up managing a 100 different relationships. And some of you guys know how frustrating and anxiety-producing that is because you just feel like, man, no one's ever all fully happy with me. And so you're sort of carrying the burden of all of that relational anxiety. And I think fear of man is sort of a fearful response to that. Um, narcissism is, I think, the prideful response to that chronic anxiety. Think about it this way. Um, it's an attempt to stand apart from the system, but in a reactive way. The way I'm going to deal with this chronically anxious system is I'm just going to separate myself from it and not let it define me. And so I'll be the self-defined leader, not to serve the system, but to protect myself from that mess. So what if we begin to think about narcissism or authoritarian styles of leadership, not as just a guy who's a prideful jerk, but as a wounded man who's trying to establish a sense of self and just does it by sort of isolating from a system that's riddled with chronic anxiety. I don't think that's always what drives people to sort of narcissistic tendencies, but I think that's a really important understanding of how we can get there. Um, to say it another way, um, I'm not sure that I've ever met a narcissist who has a good relationship with his dad. I think most of those kinds of leaders are coming out of unhealthy family systems and are just trying to figure out, how do I figure out who I am in contrast to that? And the only way I can do it is to sort of draw a wall around myself and say, I don't know what to do with that, but I'm just going to, sort of going to protect myself from it. And so I become isolated and sort of authoritarian in my leadership as a way of just trying to not be that. So I think for all of us in the room, we probably lean in one of those two directions, either sort of the fear of man kind of leadership or the more authoritarian, self-driven kind of leadership. Um, and I think the gospel sort of invites us into a whole different way of relating I think the gospel, rightly sort of apprehended, opens up the capacity for differentiation. So let me explain how it does that. Um, gospel identity should give us a stable sense of self. Right? Like if the problem with, if, if the problem with a failure of nerve is that I don't have a, a differentiated sense of who I am in distinction from others, well, that's exactly what the gospel gives me. Right, the gospel redefines my self-perception that fundamentally before I am a husband, a father, a pastor, a leader, a friend, I am first of all a man in Christ. That's my most foundational identity. And the reason God calls me out of the world and establishes me in Christ is to ground me with a stable sense of identity that then allows me to differentiate myself from the world around me in ways that are meaningful and helpful. 
Not in a way that isolates me from the world or in a way that manages the world, but rather in a way that understands who I am as I live in the world. Right? So a, a deep apprehension of our identity in Christ, who I am before I'm a leader, before I'm a pastor, before I'm a servant of the Lord, before I'm a preacher, before I'm a minister, who am I in Jesus? Groundedness in that establishes a sense of differentiation that gives me a stable presence as a leader. And so the more we understand and are rooted in our identity in Christ, the more I think we operate as the right kind of differentiated leaders. So gospel identity, I think, is foundational. The first thing the gospel does is give us a new identity that should establish a settled, well-differentiated presence. In addition to that, if I can use the phrase gospel identity and gospel virtue, um, I think the virtue the gospel calls us into, right? As we walk with Christ, this sort of forming of the fruit of the Spirit more fully in our lives ought to increasingly give us that sense of being well differentiated because what the fruit of the Spirit is designed to do is to move me into the kind of stability as a person that instead of reacting, instead of managing other people's emotional crises, instead of differentiating myself in unhealthy ways, I'm able to move into the world with what? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, goodness, self-control. These things describe how a well-differentiated leader interacts in the world, right? They're relational categories primarily. And so what the gospel does is, one, give us a grounded identity, and two, shape in us the kind of virtue that increasingly allows us to differentiate helpfully from the world around us in ways that then we can, rather than taking on the chronic anxiety of the world around us or sort of um, unhealthily reacting against it, we can move into it in all the ways that Friedman seems to see as healthy leadership. So I, I, essentially what I'm saying, the case I'm making is this. I think Friedman is, is connecting general revelation insights. He's saying, I've observed leaders in the synagogue, in the family, and in society and business, and healthy leaders all have this same sort of the same sort of stability, the same sort of self-differentiation. Um, so I think he's just sort of looking at general revelation and saying, um, there's, there's a certain thing that's true of healthy leaders. And what I'm saying is, the gospel ought to give us the resources to live in that category more fully even than the best leaders around us in society. That really, Christ establishing us a stable identity and building in us gospel virtue should make us the kind of leaders who really can, in a well differentiated, healthy way, stand apart and lead from a deep sense of presence. So what the gospel does in us is it, it creates or should be creating, and again, this is always a journey, right? It should be creating a healthy sense of presence that, allow, that changes the way we engage in leadership, that changes how we respond to other people's reactivity, other people's emotional turmoil, um, other people's desire to herd together and, um, and resolve conflict by sort of us versus them categories, the gospel changes how we as leaders are able to meaningfully enter into those things. Um, so what I'm hoping to do here is just to sort of give you these categories and say, hey, I think this for me over the past three or four years has been one of the most fruitful understandings um, in thinking about how the gospel changes me as a leader. 
Because I think I had thought about the categories of sort of faith and repentance. I'd thought about the categories of sort of theology and preaching and gospel centrality. But understanding how does the gospel actually transform the way I exist in the world as a leader? How does it change the way people experience me? Um, so let me close with a little bit of narrative, and then I'll sort of open it up for whatever questions you guys want to talk about and however you want to go from here. Um, the question that I began asking and that we began encouraging the people on our leadership team to ask is this. Um, how do you experience me as a leader? That is a very dangerous question. Because when you ask it and give people the freedom to be honest, you will tend to hear things that aren't so encouraging. Because people will be honest with you about how they experience you as a leader. Um, for me, here was the key insight in my own leadership. Um, I asked my team this couple years ago, specifically our elders and some of the staff who worked with me closely, um, and what they, what they essentially said was, at your best, you're an incredibly courageous, defining, theologically grounded leader, and at your worst, you're a very defensive person. And so when people challenge you, when people disagree with you, uh, when people critique you, you have a tendency immediately to sort of go into a defensive posture. Um, now, it was really a grace to me for people to be willing to say that to me because what I wanted to do in the first place was defend why I'm actually not defensive, right? I was like, well, I'm not defensive. What are you talking about? That's what I did, right? And then I realized, oh, gosh, I'm defending myself against the charge of being defensive. So that, that gave some credibility to what they were saying. So here's what it did. It, it made me start going into, into my own soul and asking, why am I that way? What do I feel a need to defend myself against? Where is that rooted in my character? And what it began to bring about was a much deeper sort of repentance and faith. It wasn't just about sort of my activities or behaviors as a leader, but about my sort of disposition and presence. And what I began asking the Lord is, God, would you change the, the, the way I am? Would you change my presence as a leader so that people experience less and less a defensive and sort of conflict-oriented leader and more and more a warm and um, relationally engaged leader? And so what happened is, and again, I, I, don't, I don't think there's anything I did other than just the grace of God in revealing that for me and, and helping me sort of begin to pray and express repentance and faith. But what happened is, uh, the Lord over the course of about a year, I think really began to reframe some of that in my soul. I think I still, and am always going to be, um, a little bit of a defensive person in conflict. But what began to happen was it became so much, more, so much easier for me to say, Man, what do you have to say to me? Let me hear more of it. I understand, you're not surprising me right now, I understand I'm that way, tell me more. Like, I just began to see people's critiques and criticisms and threats not as accusation, but as information, as, in fact, grace from the Lord, right? Because what changed was, I'm no longer reacting, and I'm no longer sort of taking on the anxiety of the system around me by saying, well, I, that, that makes me concerned about how you view me, and so I want to defend that. Um, so that's just one sort of personal example of how this has played out in my own life. And I think that this whole category of presence is really huge. And so just uh, we do a thing called the roundtable at Coromdea with guys that we're trying to sort of develop toward eldership. And just on Wednesday night before I came here, we were sitting with seven guys around the table in our conference room uh, doing sort of some of this stuff. And one of the, you know, two of the guys in the room asked this question to the other seven guys on the table, hey, how do you experience me as a leader? And, man, it's transformative because it just opens up windows of um, 
Here's how you come across. Why do you come across that way? Why do I experience you in these particular ways? And so I hope that that for you becomes then a fruitful question. You could even ask, first of all, your spouse um, and then the people that you're leading with to gain insight into your presence as a leader and to ask the question, how does the gospel need to reframe and reform it um, in, in ways that transform how you are experienced by others and how you sort of exist in the relational and emotional system called your church, all right? So that's what I had to, to, to unload on you, um, and I hope that's in some way helpful and provocative. What questions do you guys want to ask to sort of take this further uh, as we continue? And how, I should check how much time we have, shouldn't I? All right, so we've got about um, 15 minutes for questions. Or maybe not just questions, comments, interactions, critiques. I'm very open to criticism right now, so you, you know, it'd be really good for me if you guys are just sort of... That's, that's the million-dollar question, right? Yeah, yeah, so Hunter, yeah, thank you. Um, so Hunter asked, uh, if we have this tendency, if all of us as leaders have this tendency to establish or to find some piece of our identity in the thing that we're leading, what does it, what does it look like to establish a grounded sense of self that's disconnected from my church and yet that does serve and is connected meaningfully to my church? I said, I, I think that's the million-dollar question for all of us. I think that's the question of pastoral leadership is, what does it mean for me to be grounded enough in my identity that I don't get my identity from the thing I'm leading, but I'm still meaningfully connected and in, invested in the thing I'm leading? Um, and I, I might invite Scotty even in his part after this to sort of give some insight there from, from being further down the road and from a guy who just sort of transitioned out of the thing he led for 30 years. But I think, Hunter, um, for me, I'll just talk existentially. I took sabbatical um, four years ago and that was some, it took that sort of distance for me to sort of get there. Um, for the Lord to get me, the, the Lord began making me process on my sabbatical questions like, who am I if I'm not the pastor of Cormdale? Uh, who am I if I'm not the author of the gospel-centered life? Who, am I okay that I am a son of God beloved by the Father in Christ apart from accomplishment, achievement, significance, role, responsibility? Um, I think by God's grace on my sabbatical, I was able to answer that question, yes, but it took two months of distance from my church and a lot of sort of soul work to get there. But I, I think for all of us, the ability to sort of ask those questions and get to that place of what I would call gospel distance, um, I, I think, I'll also say, I think there's a, um, there's probably a, a life experience piece there, right? Like I think in our 20s, all of us are asking the question, who am I? And in our 30s, all of us are asking the question, what am I good at? And so for most of you guys in the room, you're in the middle of one of those two questions. Who am I and what am I good at? And I just think for a leader who's between the ages of probably 22 and 40, those, those questions flow together in really complicated ways, right? Like when I was planting Quorum Day, there was a piece of me that like part of my identity is wrapped up in. Is this thing successful? Is it going to go well? And is it going to, you know, is it going to be what I want it to be? I don't think there's any way to fully extricate ourselves from that. But I think what the gospel does is it invites us to begin to gain a critical distance and to begin to wrestle with questions of how are we placing our identity in the thing that we're building or the people that we're leading? And what would it mean for us to be so grounded in the gospel that our identity is not defined by or sort of mixed up with the thing we're leading? And I think only, I guess I would say, I think only by that sort of disengagement can we then meaningfully get to the second half of your question, Hunter, which is, how do I meaningfully lead this thing purposefully without my identity being tied to it? Um, 
And, you know, it's kind of like a, I don't know. As I read the Bible, I think that's what Moses went through, spending 40 years in the wilderness. I think that's what David went through in the whole rebellion with Absalom. I think those sort of scenes in Scripture are a leader having distanced themselves from the thing they're leading and sort of experiencing God's grace in that in a way that allows them to move back in purposefully. And I just think that's the, that's the sort of journey of leadership. So there's not a perfect answer to the question, but I think awareness is a pretty key piece, and just asking the question is a pretty key piece. Yeah, go ahead, Matt. Interns still have great questions. Go ahead. Um, you're asking a how much of question, which I don't like because it forces me to choose a, a, a sort of position or a, a percentage. And I, there's, not, there's just not an easy answer to that question. I think what the gospel should create is a, what I would just say a radical honesty which I think is a little different from, I think there's, love, there, there's like context in which that honesty should be more and less expressed, right? Like, I don't want to bear all my wounds and sins from the pulpit. I want to bear some of them, but I want to bear the most of them in close friendship and relationship with people that I trust and love. But as a leader, what I want people to see is, hey, I'm, I'm honest. Like, it, you, you, you can ask me how I am, and you're not always going to get the smiley, everything's great answer. Uh, some days you're going to get the I'm, I'm kind of crappy right now, answer, right? And there's a true honesty and a true vulnerability that's there. So, so I just think that navigating that reality um, comes out of my own experience with the Lord and my own experience of sort of how, discon- how centered am I in my identity in Christ that makes it okay for me to be real and be honest and be vulnerable. But I also think if gospel virtue is growing in my life, then more and more, see, I think when, when sort of, I don't want to, I don't want to create generational categories here, Matt, but I think when, when millennials tend to think of authenticity, they only think of sort of the bear all your, bear all your ugliness to me. But I think there's also, a, what, what if I'm actually really happy in the Lord right now? Can I say that? Is that okay? Does that count as vulnerability? Or is that, you know, like, t- t- it feels to me like sometimes that counts as the company answer for people that are really cynical. And so I want to say, I think being vulnerable as a leader and being honest is both sharing, hey, here's where I'm struggling right now, but man, here's where the Lord's at work in my life. Here's where I'm experiencing great progress in marriage. Here's where I'm experiencing great fruitfulness in ministry, and I'm really alive with God's grace. And I think as, as long as people hear us doing both of those in very honest ways, it puts forward and creates a climate that says, well, man, both of those are open for debate and discussion. Both of those are brought to the table. And what it means to be a, a gospel-formed Christian is honest about my weaknesses and struggles and honest about my triumphs and victories and the grace of God in my life. Yeah. Uh, so the question is, so these two ditches, narcissism, fear of man, um, what are some other red flags? Besides the question of how do you experience me, what are some other red flags that sort of can hint that I'm leaning in one of these two directions? Um, that's a really great question, and I think that really the best way to answer that is in community. So, like, what I what I want is I want my elders answering that question for me. I want them saying, "Hey, what? Like, how are you guys experiencing me right now? And where am I? Where am I living, falling off the horse?" So, for me, for instance, I probably lean more toward that sort of authoritarian, self against the world kind of leadership. And so that's the that's the primary ditch I'm sort of on the lookout for. Is like, okay, let me know as as that's manifesting itself in my leadership. But what that causes me to do is I can also overcorrect into fear of man, right? And I don't, I don't like overcorrecting into fear of man because I feel like, well, that's not, that's not who I am. That's not sort of the, the side I fall off on. But my elders are really helpful at saying, hey, do you realize the questions you're asking right now imply that you kind of want everybody in our church to be okay with what you think or how you're going to lead us in this situation, and they might not be. 
Like, so, so having community around you that just can meaningfully engage the existence of your reality as a leader, I think is the best way to see what the red flags are. Um, and and I, I do want to say, when I'm using this narcissism and fear of man, I'm not a, I think there's all kinds of other complications to leaders. I'm just trying to give simple categories that I think relate to either overly concerned with what people think or not concerned with what people think as two ways of responding to sort of chronic anxiety. Yeah. Anything else?